Unorthodox listeners, an obscenity warning for you. In the forthcoming podcast, we may use bad words like the F word or the S word or Donald J. Trump. <laughs> if you can't handle obscenity, don't listen. I actually have a suggestion. At the end of the show, if you have a Drake anecdote and you didn't get to share it, come up here. Come to Mark. Hello, Toronto. <laughs> This is Unorthodox, a weekly podcast from Tablet Magazine. I'm Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by Tablet Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Hi, Toronto. And our guests this week include novelist and Canadian David Vesmosgus. And special Gentile of the Week, mezzo-soprano and CBC host Julie Nasrallah. Now, those of you who are on Team Liel, because we've discovered that sometimes our listeners write to us and say, I'm Team Stephanie, I'm Team... But we actually don't see ourselves as being on separate teams, but for those of you who are on Team Liel and are wondering, where is he? Um, he is somewhere between Ohio and New York, but he was thrown off of a plane this morning for thinking that his green card would get him into Canada. He, of course, is Israeli, not American, and apparently in the old days... If you were not an American, but you had a green card, that was good enough for Canada, but it's not anymore, and he didn't know that, and he was supposed to be flying, I guess, Cincinnati to Toronto or something, and he was actually forcibly removed from the plane. So, playing the part of Liel Leibowitz, at least for the News of the Jews segment, will be Alyssa Goldstein. G'day. <laughs> and if you are upset that Liel didn't show, if you're on Team Liel, and you want to know how, if you want to let him know how he can make it up to you, we invite you to send him an email. His email is... <laughs> listen, write it down. Write it down. Liel, L-I-E-L, 637 at gmail.com. That's Liel, 637 at gmail.com. And it would, if you want his cell phone number, come see me after the yeah, show. Yeah. Yeah. We would love for you to tell him exactly how you feel. All right. Uh, the other thing you can do if you uh, are on your phone anyway, writing to Liel, is you can go to iTunes and subscribe to our show. If everyone in this room went to iTunes, went onto your podcast app, went to iTunes, typed in on Orthodox, and subscribed, that actually jacks up our ad rates and gets us more money and allows us to keep going. So that'd be inc you don't have to listen once it downloads. You just have to auto-download it. We don't really care if you listen to it. Just auto-download it. And that gets us more money and allows us to keep and bringing you the show. Can I add one thing? Yeah. If you write a review, even a very short one, we will send you a special gift in the mail. So mm. just email unorthodox at tabletmag.com and say, hey, Alyssa, I wrote a review. Here it is. Send me my present. And like, I'll send that's it. how much we need validation. That's right. So what if like, the review please. of us sucks? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Okay. It's important to hear it, you know? Just grow. Um, Stephanie Butnick, how was your day? I have to say, I love Toronto. Um, I'm not just saying that. I'm not just saying that, but if there is anyone who wants to, like, you know, give me their spare room or couch for the next, I don't know, like six months to four years, I am so down. Um, I don't take up that much space. I have a cat who needs to come with me, but other than that, we're great. We'll do the dishes, you know, we'll contribute to the household. Wait, if the stormtroopers come, you don't leave the cat behind? I mean, come on. No. No? <laughs> but so I've been watching, I've been watching the news all day. Just trying to like really immerse myself. I haven't been on Twitter for the past few days because I just like hate everything that's happening in America right now. So I'm really excited to like just be out of the country. So I want to tell you that like I know what's going on. I know about the garbage collector strike <laughs> in Pell. 
I don't know where that, peel, peel, sorry. Oh God. <laughs> Is that here? Is that affecting you guys? Uh, forget it then. The toll hike, <laughs> the proposed toll hike. And they have a really hot prime minister. And no, well, we knew I'm, not that. Gonna, I'm not going to, okay. I want to give you my third piece of news. Oh, sorry. News of the Canadians. Okay. The, the segment okay. is called. NOTC. The suspect in the biggest drug bust in Toronto went to court today. Did anyone know that? Get it right here first. Yeah, you heard it here. Get it right here anyway, first. I'm very happy to be here. Love this place. I love this place, too. I have to give a shout-out to my college roommate from four years in college, Doug McKay, who grew up in St. Catharines, Ontario, and 20 years ago introduced me to the Tragically Hip and the Bare Naked Ladies. And he is now, um, you know, he's a plastic surgeon in Kingston. And so if you need work done, let me just put in a plug for my college roommate. Um, and I, it's funny because you were, you're, you're blatantly just asking for a room for four years. Or a couch. Or a couch, even. Like a futon? I'll tell you the conversation. Daybed? <laughs> chaise lounge? Is that how you say that word? Chaise longue. You're not going to Montreal, I guess. Um, the... The conversation Sid and I had was, um, so inevitably, I travel, you know, like once a month for two or three days. I don't travel a lot, lot, but it's, it's a couple days, but with some frequency, often to do this show. And inevitably, in the week before I leave, like, I mean, she and I really don't fight much, although we're fighting more now that Trump is president because we have different points of view of how scared to be. But, you know, if, God forbid, there's some sort of little marital tiff in the week leading up to a trip of mine, I always sort of diffuse the tension by saying something like, hey, you better be nice to me. I have a road trip coming up. You don't know what I'm doing. And then she goes, har, 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 like you wouldn't know what to do if you did have the blah, blah, blah. So this time I made this joke two days ago. I was like, hey, I have a road trip coming up. You better be nice to me. And she's like, well, you know what? If you're in Toronto and you meet some nice lady, do whatever you need to do to get us a visa. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not suggesting that. I'm only saying... That's the level of... So ladies. So ladies. So I'm just saying that's the level of affection we have for Canada is in my house at this point is my wife is actually pimping me out, <laughs> pimping out the father of her four children to do whatever it takes to get us across the border. I love the idea that this involves you charming a woman so much that she's like, <laughs> bring your whole family out. Like, we'll have a great time. Four kids, two dogs. That's fine. You're that great. <laughs> All right. A little news of the Jews. The first Jewish Comic-Con was held in Brooklyn. About 140 or so, we presume Jews, attended Jewish Comic-Con, a comics convention that was held at a small little shtiebel in Brooklyn. Uh, the gathering gave Jewish artists a space to show their work. They talked, they schmoozed, they did l'chaims, they analyzed Jewish characters from Jewish comic books, which raises the question, aren't all Comic-Cons actually Jewish Comic-Cons? Like, did they really need a place for dorky comic book readers to gather at a Jewish space? They wanted it to be even nerdier than Comic-Con. <laughs> See, if, this is when Liel would be like, guys, comic books are really cool. You, like, don't get it. Alyssa, could you play the Liel part of defending comic book nerds? Or no? Um, comic books are literature. I actually, I side with Liel on this. I think comic books are a really specific, high literary form that have sort of been unappreciated and considered lowbrow, and they're actually amazing. Yeah, I'm happy to play Liel's role there. Did Liel, did I do a good job? Tell me later. Alyssa, as a fiction writer, do you read comics? No, you I don't. don't. I do. Don't. I do read. I do read graphic novels. Really? Yes. Really. Sometimes. Really. Not all the time. So but sometimes. The, because I'm going to go out on a limb Persepolis, here. That's great. This is going to get me a lot of angry mail. But this is what I always say when I'm when I'm talking amongst people who are not going to quote me publicly, and I know that they agree with me. 
Uh, <laughs> which is, I say, when I was growing up, the thing about being a nerdy bookish kid was we read books. And you know what the other kids read? Comics. Like, the thing about being into literature was you read the books without pictures. Wait, have you read Roz Chest? Like, I don't find Roz Chest funny. I, I, but I think she's Whoa, profound. Whoa, blasphemy. I think she's deeply profound. And if you read, she writes for The New Yorker. If you don't know, she wrote a memoir about her parents and about their death. And the pathos of the illustrations, it does achieve something that writing cannot, um, particularly when it comes to grief and love and parent-child relationships. And I, I think it's, yeah, I think it's very profound. I, have you, you've got to sit with that right. Did you right. go to Jewish Comic-Con? No. Did, we, did Tablet send anyone to yes. Jewish yes. Comic-Con? Did yep. we? Who went? Gabriella. Gabriella Kozelowitz, who's a huge She wrote a great comic- a write-up of it. I'm not shocked. Shmuley Boteach. Do you guys get Shmuley up here? I'm sorry. I'm sorry we sent you Shmuley Boteach. Shmuley Boteach, who calls himself, quote, America's rabbi, at least he doesn't call himself North America's rabbi, uh, made news over the past couple days by defending Steve Bannon. Do you get Steve Bannon up here? <laughs> We're sorry about that, too. Steve Bannon, it's like of course... like Heyman, you guys yeah. just, like, ring the groggers. Steve Bannon, of course, is the tremendously horrible person who edited the tremendously horrible website Breitbart.com, which has published any manner of racist and misogynist and anti-Semitic dreck. But... Shmuley Boteach leapt to his defense, saying, why are all these Jews attacking um, Steve Bannon? He, he uh, told uh, a newspaper, I barely know Mr. Bannon. That didn't stop him, of course. Having met him for the first time last week at the New York Hilton, but I do know Joel Pollack, who works for Steve Bannon, and Joel Pollack told me that Steve Bannon gives him the Chagim off from work. Therefore, he can't be an anti-Semite. Therefore, leave Donald Trump alone. Now, I don't think we need to waste any breath on Steve Bannon, but Shmuley Boteach. Can we explain Shmuley Boteach to well, our Canadian friends? <laughs> no, he can't be explained to anyone. And I'm, I don't, he basically made up the title America's Rabbi. But the, the, the beautiful irony of this is like the alt-right is now like, America's Rabbi says Steve Bannon's not anti-Semitic, like therefore he's fine. Yeah. And we're like, that's not a real thing. Right, the right wing America doesn't think, have a rabbi. They think we have a chief rabbi and it's Shmuley Boteach. Because he calls himself America's rabbi, and he had that reality show, Shalom in the Home. And also, don't forget his op-ed that he co-authored with Pamela Anderson against pornography, I believe it was. Oh, no. Is that right? Yes. I feel like he is just proof of the fact that, like, you can call yourself anything, and then if you just, like, say it enough, and on enough websites, (gasps) people will just, like, start calling you that. And they might even vote for you. (laughs) That's right. You know what we are? We're America's podcast. Yeah. We coined that here. Actually, North America's podcast. We're North America's <laughs> podcast. Okay. Don't be so Americocentric. I don't mean to be so Americocentric. normative I don't mean to be so Americocentric. Um, last night, a bit of Drake news. Last night was Drake night at the Raptors game. Where's your hat? Can we get a boo? I have, oh, I have my hat. I was, I've been wearing my Toronto Raptors, my OVO by Toronto Raptors hat all day. I forgot it. It's a little warm in here. It's like it's a it's a it's a it's winter a ski hat. Cap. Yeah. yeah, you could wear it for the after party. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yes, tablets. You know, unofficial Drake correspondent. Again, the kind of thing that if I say it enough, like yeah. you guys will just start calling me that. I'm excited to like be in a room in Toronto in, in Drake's Drake's stomping grounds. I mean, right? Right? And aren't we like? In, There's a lot of ambivalence. Let's, we can say the Drake. Raptors lost last night. That was you know tough. Do, so I'm sorry. Do we want to? Do we, do we want to get to the bottom of this Drake thing? Do we want oh, yeah. to play Jewish so, geography? So, yeah. so we, we, you know, Drake's this big thing here in the world, and we hear that he's from Toronto and is Jewish, but there's a lot of urban right? legends. Like, he's from here. He's from Forest Hill. 
Yeah. Like, and that's right across Bat. What's the street? Bathurst. 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 Street. Broadway. Just called Broadway. <laughs> it's their broad. It's, so it's their like, Broadway. Okay. So I've, 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 you know, I've done a lot of. I've written about Drake. I've researched him. There's these like things about him. It's like. Drake went to synagogue in Toronto. Drake went to Jewish day school. And I'm like, I'm here. I'm going to get to the bottom of this. Did he go to Jewish day school? Wait, could we get, could we, Alyssa, would you mind I mean, we can get getting the, the audience, audience and yes. getting some intelligence yes. on this? I'm, I'm actually like doing on the ground reporting here. Yeah. So some he, of you look so uncomfortable. It's like you all know his mom. Because I know someone who knows his sister. He doesn't have a sister, but you know. Okay. What can you tell us? Well, he went to Jewish day school when he was a kid. That's true. Where? Um, I can't remember, but it happened. And his bar mitzvah was in the basement of an Italian restaurant. What restaurant? Which one? My friend who was his cousin does not remember. See, okay. see, I don't quite believe it yet. It's still at the status of urban legend. You see what I'm saying? No, we need to, we need, okay. I, I, I see some and hands like, what synagogue? I'm going to run if, to some hands. I'm guessing it wasn't this one. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, there'd be like a plaque on the wall. But see, it's interesting. We have like several hundred Canadian Jews here. None of them can quite confirm any of it. I think it's a collective mass delusion. This, this lovely even woman from here Toronto. Has Hi. So um, I know he may have gone to Jewish day school. I don't. I don't know for sure, but I can confirm that he went to public high school. He started at Forest Hill Collegiate, and then he later ended up at Vaughan Road Academy. And I know this because my colleague. I'm. I'm a teacher. My colleague is um, was a music teacher at. Von Road Academy, and she was not his music teacher, but she was a music. <laughs> <laughs> she was a music teacher in the department when he was there, and she ran the Black History Assembly with him. So she read Black History Assembly with him, <laughs> but she was not his music and teacher. She so she can't take credit for his music career. <laughs> All right, we need one yeah, more. Degrassi, Degrassi. One, one more yeah. over here. Okay. We need one more bit of Drake intelligence. This is like six degrees of. Okay, I don't Kevin know very Drake much about him, but. His booby lived with my booby in the retirement home. Evelyn Cher? They shared dinner together, you know. And you and know... This booby that's on one of his... Like, she's yeah, talked to one of the CDs she, or he, Yeah, she, he's on, she's on two of his songs. One yeah. of them is a voicemail. He named the Cher Club at... What's the stadium? Air Canada? After his Bubby and Zadie. Well, she was very nice. Right. Right. Yeah. I say bounce that shit like whoa. Yeah, bounce that shit like whoa. This is not a fairy tale. I already know how you like it. Take you to the mall and get you a new outfit. Girl, that shit some child's play. Bounce that shit like whoa. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, everyone. Before we bring up our first guest, I just want to give some love to two new podcasts on the Panoply Network. The first is called Team Wolf. It's a Teen Wolf podcast, a new show co-produced with MTV. 
Caitlin Vela and Amanda Garak are the Wolfpack Girls. Before they started working at MTV, they were just two huge fans looking to talk about their favorite TV show, Teen Wolf, and they still are. And now they have their very own podcast to guide you through Teen Wolf's final season. Also, uh, Panoply is debuting In the Limelight, a new show with Vanity Fair magazine. It's a weekly podcast from Josh Duboff and Julie Miller of Vanity Fair, exploring the ins and outs of pop culture, entertainment, and celebrity. They want you to pour yourself a glass of champagne, or maybe two or three, and join them as they go in-depth on the celebrity narratives and storylines of the day, from Kate Middleton, excuse me, Princess Kate, to the Kardashians. Uh, They are obsessives. They invite you to obsess with them. If you want to obsess with unorthodox and you winter in Florida, who here winters in Florida? We've got three people who winter in Florida. You are the lucky ones. You get free tickets to our show at Temple Israel in West Palm Beach. If you show up at the door and say you saw us in Toronto on February 10th in West Palm, we'll let you in for free. Uh, February 10th, we'll be at Temple Israel in West Palm Beach. If you would like to book a live show, contact Alyssa Goldstein at egoldstein at tabletmag.com. If you want to get our print edition, go to Tablet's website and subscribe to our print edition. And whatever you do, make sure you subscribe to us and rate us on iTunes. Ladies and gentlemen, the Jew of the week is your favorite Jewish Latvian Canadian novelist. You know who I mean. He's the author of Natasha and Other Stories, The Free World and The Betrayers. He's won a ton of prizes. He's so big that we know who he is in the United States. He is currently on the writing staff of the television series Orphan Black, and he wrote my favorite short story of the last 50 years, Minion, which I photocopy and hand to people. Please welcome David Besmosgus. So David, welcome. Great to be here. How are you? Excellent. So before- I live in Canada. (laughs) That's gonna work forever. Have you have you been a Jew of the Week before? Um, no. Second question. Yes. What is your tattoo on your right arm? Don't think I didn't notice. You notice this. Um, uh, there's two tattoos. I didn't know if it Can was I be one. Jew of the Week and have tattoos? You may. This is possible. This is, you, These are not mutually exclusive things. You, more than anyone, surely know that the whole thing about not being buriable in a Jewish synagogue is urban legend, not true. I didn't know that. Really? I just did it anyway. You, you can still be buried in a Jewish synagogue. You all know that's nonsense, right? Cemetery. cemetery. No, you can't be buried in a synagogue. <laughs> God like forbid. Really you, could weird. you could just fall asleep in a synagogue, but you can't be buried there. <laughs> but you know you can still be buried in a Jewish cemetery. It's not, it's not true. So now David knows. It wasn't a big concern. It wasn't a big concern. Okay. Um, there's two. There's one was, uh, it's, uh, Riga, it's Dynamo, which is a sports club in the Soviet Union that my father worked in. So that's one. And the other, it's, uh, three Matryoshka dolls. I have three daughters. That really raises the bar of what I'm supposed to do having four daughters. <laughs> you just add one doll, man. I have no <laughs> tattoos at all. So, um, Let's just dive right in. You are a fiction writer who is now writing for TV. This is something that other people, you know, Richard Price has done this. Other people have done this. Um, was it just the money or did you really care about the, the art form? The money doesn't hurt. <laughs> so there's that. How much better is the money in TV than in, than in short stories? A thousand times better. <laughs> <laughs> but it's Canadian money, so you take off 30%. I see. <laughs> But so, why, I mean, why did you, what, um, what prompted this move? A number of things. I mean, I'm a filmmaker, too. Um, I've, I've yep. directed a couple films. Um, 
I'm, I was developing a TV series for the CBC um, about the uh, Fort McMurray, which is where our oil sands is, which is when Canada was bad. Remember when Canada was bad and we were going to do that whole thing with Keystone XL, which we're apparently going to do again. Um, You're welcome. Yeah. And um, so I was doing that and I got involved with the production company that makes the show Orphan Black, which is arguably Canada's most successful television series. Um, yay, Orphan Black. Orphan Black fans. And I was interested in it and this is their fifth season. Um, my first for them. Can you explain the concept of the show because I was trying to I've seen it and I couldn't so I figured you have to you've watched the show and you still don't understand Orphan Black I I couldn't explain (laughs) it in a concise way so um, a woman discovers that she's a clone and she meets her multiple clone sisters and they try to understand who created them and why does that do it? that does sound pretty simple now (laughs) It's a dystopian kind of sci-fi thing that's set in the present, which is not as bad as the dystopian sci-fi thing that's actually happening in the present. <laughs> which isn't sci-fi, just bad. Well, speaking of which, I believe you fled a country that had some issues of s- democracy performing at a subpar level and came here. I now live, as does Stephanie, as does Alyssa, in a country where democracy seems to be performing at a subpar level, and we're fearing that it's going to get worse. Um, do you have any wisdom for us? Well, your democracy actually worked. You just don't like who voted for who. Are you, are you saying it was a rigged system? No, I'm at... <laughs> so you're right to call me out on that. It worked all too well. I get, well, it didn't work in that she, Hillary got the major, more votes. But we, you know we have the stupid electoral college thing where the states get apportioned different. It's all t- winner take all. My wife is American. My wife is American who converted to Judaism and converted to Canadianism. <laughs> and is she here right now? She's not. She's with our daughters. Your three daughters. Yeah. So, fair enough, but are, are, should, I be, should I be blasé? I mean, the, what we're all struggling with in America is, is authoritarianism a risk because we've elected someone who sometimes talks like he likes authoritarianism? Should we be afraid? Yes. How afraid? Very afraid. Like panic? Because I feel like... People are panicking. You should be so afraid that I'm afraid. That's why I'm digging my own, here's a Russian word, zimlyanka, which is like a big underground burrow, just in case. Is there room for two more? (laughs) Canada's a big country. If you avoid the Canadian shield, which is very rocky, you just got to dig around it. So so what should we do? Do you have any advice? We're, we're, We're all ears. Fight, man. This is the thing with these Americans, right? Like, so Americans are like talking about, oh, can I come to Canada? And Lena Dunham is like, I'm moving to Vancouver. I'm like, you're the guys we don't want. You're like the cowards who won't fight for your country that we don't want. I did a panel with Adam Hochschild. He, he wrote a book um, most recently about the Spanish Civil War and the international brigades. And he was like, if Trump wins, and this was part of the discussion, right? Like comparing what was happening in the United States during the election with Franco and, you know, the Spanish Civil War and, and people fighting for, you know, the Spanish Republic. And I was like, and Adam's like, well, if, if Trump wins, I'm coming here. I'm like, what? You just wrote a book about the Spanish Civil War and how people went to fight. I'm like, I'll go. I'll come to America and fight sooner than I think Americans should come to Canada and hide. It is, it is like sort of a weak standpoint to run away. I'm saying I want to actually live in Toronto because I love Toronto. That's yeah. why I'm asking you for room in your home. It's, it's, 
it's less about Trump. Wait, so, but, so, and Lena Dunham was being told to move to Canada by <laughs> Americans. So that's like a little can you, different. Can you tell her to move somewhere else? <laughs> so, I, I mean, that's quite a conundrum we're in, which is if we, it, let's say we get really afraid and we fear for our, our safety. Let's not say our lives. We'll just start with our safety, our well-being. And we want to leave. You're going to think that we're cowards for wanting to leave. So you're not going to want us. So what, that's to like, that's tough love? We have to stay and just arm ourselves and hope for the best? It's funny, it's like, do you hear conservatives like Republicans ever say if the country goes bad, we're gonna move somewhere? They never say it, only Democrats say it. So this is your advice. weak. Is that true? Because we don't weak have guns. and unarmed, <laughs> yeah. If Liel was here, he would tell us that he, we are all gonna be fine because he's gonna protect us with his guns. He's, he actually would tell all of us to get guns. To get guns. So let's put this on you, Bezmosgis. If yeah. Trump were president of Can- prime minister of Canada, yes. and had had the kind of shock troops that we fear he, that are latently lying there, who would back him yeah. if he had some authoritarian measures he wants to? What would you do? I do what you know. What my uh, what my grandfather? They did. moved to Canada. No, <laughs> <laughs> he, he fought for the Red Army. You know, it's like I put my kid in a, a very nice, um, you know. Uh, convent, right? I think that's what we're supposed to do. I put my daughters in a convent. Right, you get the nuns will take care of them. The right? nuns will take care of the girls, um, and then I will arm myself thoroughly and go to the forest. You know, I did tell Sid that. I said, I'll send you and the girls to Canada. I'll stay and fight. That's like plan C or something like that. Yeah, so. I would fight for Canada. Absolutely. I do think that's something that we're missing, this sense of like, I will fight right? for my country. Yeah, because that's a kind of patriotism. It's a great country. So tell us about the Canadian character, right? Like you moved here at a young age. Maybe you have a slight sort of outsider perspective, even though obviously you're Canadian. But how are Canadians different from Americans, or are they not? I mean, is it a red herring? I think, I think Canadians... This is obviously because we're going to move here. We need to right. know what we're getting into. Sure. Well, you have to move here, and then you have to start resenting Americans immediately. Okay. Are you, are you willing to do that? I resent them already. <laughs> resent them, sort of like envy them and resent them at the, at same, the same time. At the same time, right. If you can do that. Um, but yeah, for a long time, it was this envy, envy and resentment, and Americans would sometimes pay lip service to the fact that Canada's like, it's nice, it's polite, it's clean, it's so clean, but you felt like, yeah, you're not serious, you'd never actually live here, but now your country is so shit <laughs> that I think Americans are saying this in earnest. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It is clean here. It's, it's very clean. I don't mean that disrespectfully, I really like it. Yeah. Are you ever going to go back to short stories? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my last published short story was, was for Tablet, the print magazine. I was hoping you'd say that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I will do more, yeah. So would you ever move to the United States? Because uh, Jonathan Goldstein's living in Brooklyn, apparently. I know, I know. My and, you know, I just feel like maybe that's what we need in our country is some of you guys. He moved there for love. Uh, oh, is that what happened? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I hope I'm not telling tales out of school. Um, Jonathan Goldstein has a friend. <laughs> a special friend. A lover friend. <laughs> A Brooklyn lover. Friend. A Brooklyn lover. Um, I'm I'm actually fonder of America than my American-born wife. So if I wanted to move, she would not let me. How'd you guys meet? We met. Um, I was in film school at USC, and she was in the music program at USC. We met in a parking lot at USC. Like you just bumped. Into, did you put I the moves her, on? I or? picked her up in a parking lot at USC. <laughs> <laughs> What's the line there? Do you remember? I'll tell you the line. Yeah. Um, I was talking to a buddy of mine, and my birthday was coming up, which we were going to have in Elysian Park, which is downtown L.A., and he said, I'll come if she comes, because she walked out the door, and I was like, oh, then I 
Good call. Good call, right? He, he was at my wedding, too, when we told this. Um, and I came up to her and I said, you know, do you want to come to a birthday party? And she's like, whose? And I'm like, mine. She's like, when is it? She's, and I told her the date. She's like, sorry, it's my grandmother's birthday in Ohio. I'm not going <laughs> to be here. I'm like, we'll move it. <laughs> That's actually what I said. I've only had like maybe two or three good pickup lines in my entire life, but <laughs> that worked. David Besmosgis, thank you for being Jew of the Week. Thanks. I wish you could meet my girlfriend, but you can't because she is in Canada. I love her, I miss her, I can't wait to kiss her, so soon I'll be off to Alberta. I mean Vancouver. Shit, her name is Alberta, she lives in Vancouver. She's my girlfriend, my wonderful girlfriend. I want to read a letter. I want to do a bit of mail, and then, and then we're going to... Julie can come up while I'm reading this. But um, So first of all, I just want to say, a few months ago, when we started talking about this Toronto show, somebody wrote us an email saying, when you come to Toronto, you can have dinner at my place. I misplaced that email. Are you here? It was you? I'm so sorry I misplaced that email. I would have loved to have dinner at your place. When you guys bring us back... We'll do dinner at your place, okay? So write to us again. I was like, I've, I have 12 email accounts, and I just, ugh, anyway. Um, okay. So I want to get that out of the way. Second, I thought I'd read one letter about Trump. Uh, but before I get to it, because it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a frightened letter, um, I wanted to give a little message for our American listeners. Um, we talked about this a little bit on the show last week, but I really, we're, we're going to have to talk about it more. I wanted to say where we are as a podcast. I think I'll speak for... I think I speak for all of us, but I definitely speak for me, which is, and this is to our fellow Americans, Jew and Gentile-like, that we are with you. We have your backs, and we will never, ever forget that Trump has let anti-Semites and other kinds of bigots into his inner circle. We are not comforted just because he has a Jewish daughter and some Jewish advisors. We take his authoritarian impulse seriously, and we will never, ever forget it. We know that while bigotry does not always start with the Jews, it always ends with us. And so we believe that anti-Muslim, anti-Latino, anti-black, anti-gay bigotry is inherently anti-Jewish. And as long as this podcast is on the air, we will be standing with all people who are terrified by this presidency. We won't panic, but we also won't turn our heads. And we will never, ever, ever be quiet. Okay. And I wasn't sure I wanted to say this, but I also wanted to give a quick message to some of my fellow Jews. And this would include a lot of Jewish Trump voters. Um, I've talked to some Jews in the past week or two who have said they voted for Trump for business reasons, that they thought he would bring taxes low. And all I can say is, um, that's not Jewish. Um, low taxes is not an eternal concern. Low taxes is not in Torah. Um, but justice is. And if you want to be less um, highfalutin about it, you can simply say that the survival of the Jewish people is. And for people who are now surprised that say, um, a lot of conservative Republicans, a lot of conservative Republican Gentiles stuck with Trump and are not speaking out about Steve Bannon and his anti-Semitism or the anti-Semitism of others in the inner circle or the articles on Breitbart or the white nationalist support for Trump or the Ku Klux Klan support for Trump and all of the people on the conservative right who are saying, it's going to be okay, just wait and see, it's just fine. They're doing it for their pocketbooks. And a lot of us Jews are implicated here because we sometimes do things for our pocketbooks too. And I want to remind all of us that if you have the nice sob, and if you have the nice country club membership, and if your kids go to the right college, but you never ever donate to your civil liberties organizations, and you never ever donate to the poor people, and you never ever think about who's got each other's backs in this world, I don't think that's very Jewish. 
And frankly, and frankly, I want you to know that all of your friends from the country club, they're going to be the ones who abandon you because they're the ones who care about low taxes. So if that's what you care about in this world, you've probably got what's coming to you. Okay, that's me. Do you, do you want to do a mic drop? I don't know if I speak for everyone. That, that was Mark Oppenheimer. I got a letter that I want to read. Dear Liel, Mark, and Stephanie, today I got a call from a survey company about a local political issue here in Boulder, Colorado. At the end of the survey, the nice young woman asked me a few demographic questions. When she got to the race and ethnicity question, I had to pause. I'd always put down white. Since I grew up in America, where Jews like Irish Americans and Southern and Eastern European Christians had largely passed through the barrier into the social construct that is whiteness. Anti-Semitism was never gone, but it was mostly minor, at least where I lived. With the overt and covert anti-Semitism in the campaign, and with Steve Bannon taking a prominent role in the administration of our president, I just couldn't tell that poor woman that I was white. I told her I'm a Jew and explained why. It was so beyond the scope of her job that I felt really bad afterwards. But I think it's an interesting question for the podcast. Should we stop calling ourselves white? Did it ever make sense? Was it a way to hide in plain sight from the specter of racist authoritarian government that until last week seemed impossible in America? I suppose in all of this I'm taking an Ashkenazi-centric worldview, but that's who most of us in the US but that's who most of us are in the US outside of a couple big cities. I've been venting to Facebook and Twitter all evening, but I'd love to hear your takes on the subject. Thanks, Rick Goldstein, Boulder, Colorado. Rick, we've talked about this on Unorthodox before, but I wanted to invite up, I wanted to invite back Alyssa Goldstein, our producer, who I remember we once had a conversation in the office about whiteness and Judaism. Right. So, um, you guys have got this. Okay, so this is such an interesting and complex question, and whenever it comes up, I think of, you know in the Talmud, there's like, Beis Hillel, Beis Shammai, there's always the two warring and, and kind of valid opinions, but someone wins out, someone tends to win out more than anyone else. But So I, I just want to, what I'm going to say, I want to preface by saying there are many answers to this question. But I have always felt that Jews in Australia are not quite white. And I actually know there are other Australian Jews in the room um, tonight who may disagree with me or they may agree come at me, people listening in Melbourne, send me an email. Um, I think Jews in Australia have um, white privilege, for sure. I think we pass as white in a lot of social settings, but I actually don't think that we're regarded as white by Anglo-Saxon Australians. And I also think that other Australians of colour or of other ethnic minorities don't see Jews as white. Not in a way that's bigoted, they just kind of ask you, where are you from? Like, you don't look Australian. Like, I get asked often in Australia by Italians, Greeks, Lebanese, where are you from? The assumption, they're not saying you're not Australian, they're saying you're not white, because I'm not white. Um, like, there's a term in Australia which is sort of derogatory but has been reappropriated, the term WOG. I don't know if Canadians Wog? use it, W-O-G, but it's like a term for Greeks, Italians, people from the Mediterranean, from the Middle East, Jews. Like, it's, it's sort of a general term and it, it's, it used to be derogatory. It's still a bit derogatory but also people use it affectionately. So, it was a very big shock to me when I moved to the United States six years ago and all of a sudden... Jews everywhere were white. And I, and I do believe Jews are white in the United States. I think they're more white in the US than they are in other places. But it was a bit of a it was a bit of a shift in the framework that I had in my mind because in Australia I'd always felt I was really Jewish. I wasn't actually a white Australian. 
I think it's interesting. We were talking about this before the show um, with a few folks from the synagogue. And I think in America, because of assimilation, it's like an aspirational whiteness that we have. And, and that's completely Ashkenormative of me to say. I was called out for being Ashkenormative a few, like, 10 episodes back, and it's true. But uh, so there are Jews of color for sure, and I'm not discounting them. I'm sort of saying in the majority, I think Jews pass as white in the United States and get white privilege. It's interesting from like the anti-Semitic neo-Nazi alt-right front, Jews are both white and not white because we're white in that we have power and we like supposedly control everything, but we're not white in that we're like a minority and we're, 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 subhuman in some way. That's, we're, so, we're, we're vermin. Yeah, so it's like a really weird thing. We're like, so we control everything, but we also control nothing. Explain that to me. And my point of view is always just in America, of course we pass as white very successfully, and most people perceive us that way, but real privilege is being able to run for public office and wear your religion on your sleeve. And you'll never see Joe Lieberman in public with a yarmulke. You know, you'll never see pictures of Jewish politicians laying to fill in even if they do. They just don't let it, pictures get taken. Whereas if you're Christian, you can, you can wear your cross around your neck, you can announce for office on the front steps of your church. And that's a good, that, that boosts you up some points. So we don't have that kind of privilege. Also, to say someone's a real Christian is a compliment in English, and to say someone's a real Jew is an insult. Right? Like, think about what the language does. So, you know, in, in, I think in certain meaningful ways, we're not white. I, I also think I want to say something that might sound a little bit corny and moralistic, but I do feel it in my heart, which is that this position that we're in of being in the the kind of we're in that space between whiteness and not whiteness is it, sometimes it feels burdensome, but it also comes with a great responsibility. If you can understand both sides, if you can understand the privilege that you have, like I have a lot of socioeconomic privilege, I had a great education, I was raised upper middle class, I went to university, I come from a community where everyone did that. Um, but at the same time, if you have some understanding of what it means to be discriminated against, maybe you personally, maybe your parents or your grandparents, or if you're in the United States now, it's a very frightening time. But I think being in that in-between space you, does give you this responsibility and this insight that perhaps other groups may not have as much. And there's, a, there's an impetus to act on whatever that knowledge you one know, might, provides one you might always say One might almost say we were chosen for something. Indeed. Our, but like what? What was it? <laughs> We're still working that one out. Give us another 3,000 years. Our Gentile of the Week is opera singer and radio host Julie Nasrallah. Ms. Nasrallah is the host of CBC Radio 2's classical music show, Tempo. She's won all sorts of awards for her singing. She's a mezzo-soprano, and she is the creator and star of Carmen on Tap, a rogue opera company that performs Georges Bizet's opera Carmen as dinner theater. This season, Carmen on Tap debuts at the Stratford Music Festival, Lula Lounge here in Toronto, and with the Prince Edward County Musical Festival. Welcome, Julie. Thank you. First, I have to ask, you are a recipient of the Queen's Diamond Jubilee Medal. I got that. <laughs> no, you didn't. No, I didn't. Okay. What is that, and what was it like receiving that? And are you wearing it right now? I am not wearing it right now, sadly. Um, 
It was an excellent honor to receive it. Um, it is a civilian nomination, so I was nominated by someone in Ottawa. I'm from Ottawa. I was born and raised in Ottawa. I moved to Toronto just a couple of years ago. Um, but I was nominated by a fan of my radio program who listens to the show every day uh, and just felt so close to me that when we finally had a chance to meet, um, it, it was just a loving. I fell in love with him. He fell in love with me, an older <coughs> gentleman. He has his granddaughter listening to the show. And without my knowing it, he had nominated, put my name in the hat, to receive this Diamond Jubilee. And then he invited me to the Diamond Jubilee Awards ceremony without telling me. And he was hoping to be able to reveal the fact that I had been accepted. Uh, but it didn't happen. So I was sitting through this ceremony and watching all these wonderful people and crying because it, it was just, it really is such a moving experience. It takes place in the, in, in the parliament buildings and it's very regal and grand and everyone is very humble and stands up there and waits to hear why they're being honored and for what great work they've done. And so I had this fantastic feel-good afternoon, but then he revealed to me after the fact, you were supposed to be up there with them and I was going to surprise you, but it didn't happen and then it ended up happening <laughs> six months later. Um, but it was a tremendous honor and I, my first reaction was, what? Why me? This is, this is crazy. I mean, this is a tremendous... I sometimes feel like when we fought a war to get out of the Commonwealth, we missed out on... We gave up all these opportunities. Like, like I think I could get a knighthood if I were Canadian. You could totally get a knighthood. Canadians get knighthoods, right? Oh, yes. Yeah. No? No? Oh, we well, don't. She, sorry. Oh, hate I to break. So Wait, why not? Australians do? That's right. You have to give Doesn't up Elton John have one? He's Australian, isn't he? He's British. He's British? Mark, this is embarrassing. But he's married to a Canadian. Is he really? Yes. But they live in Atlanta. <laughs> so you have a daily show. What is that like? What can you walk us through the process of getting ready for it, recording it? So yes, I have the uh, National Classical Music Program for CBC Radio 2, as was mentioned. And it's a huge job. And I think as far as being an opera singer goes, this is the best job. All my singer friends want to push me down a flight of stairs when they heard that, I, that I'd gotten it um, because it is the best day job you can possibly have. So I will typically wake up, I go into the office, I look over the script of the show that I'm about to record, I edit it, make, the, make sure that each and every story for each and every piece of music is written just so, not too long, so that you're getting a middle, a beginning, and an ending, and a feeling, and some kind of impactful punchline or something clever uh, before you hear the piece of music. And then I take that into my studio, and I record myself doing the introductions, and then play the music, and I, I do the whole enchilada. Like, I write the show, I host the show, I call it the robot, I work the robot, I, I edit it and put it together and then send it off into the universe and hope to God that it makes it okay. How do you handle the thing that all classical uh, musicians deal with, which is the constant drumbeat of classical music is dying, classical music is... It's like the constant Jews are intermarrying, Jews are intermarrying, like, you know, the sort of endless Jeremiah of this is going down with the ship. Do you, do you feel that? I do not feel that. 
I do not feel that at all. I don't think classical music is dying. In fact, there have been worries and woes about classical music dying for decades. It's, it's kind of been this old, sad song that people sing. In fact, I think that the new classical is movie music. Um, these composers who are writing for movies are writing for millions of people who are hearing their stuff, and people are getting into classical music through movie music scores, and they're hearing classical music in music, in commercials, and they're recognizing these themes, and that is a big trigger. That is a big emotional trigger. So when I play something on my program, and I play something that is a, a big hit or a tune, I, I get a lot of mail saying, oh my gosh, that was fantastic. I heard that in this movie, I heard that there. And I should add too that when I am hosting the classical music program, um, I, I mean, you can probably tell in about five seconds, I'm not a snob, uh, I'm very down to earth. All the stories I tell are very human-based, very universal, like Mozart fighting with his wife. And I talk about you know, people who have insomnia and what kind of classical music. It's very, very modern, it's very relaxed. Uh, and I try to pull in a lot of the similarities from today. I mention Elvis, I mention Bob Dylan, I mention Jerry Seinfeld, and then I'll bring Beethoven. Like some of these, some of these stories I tell, I'm telling stories about Beethoven and, and Seinfeld in the same sentence, and it's working. You just have to demystify it because everything has its place in the universe, musically speaking. Uh, there is a place for Justin Bieber. There's a place for Bob Dylan. I personally am a massive Van Morrison fan. I traveled to Belfast by myself to listen to Van Morrison along the Irish Sea. It was fantastic. Um, and there is a place for classical music. I think each genre definitely sustains different facets of our personalities, of our souls, and what we require at that moment in the day. So. It's not dying, and many young people are going to the symphony and going to the opera, and this is why I started Carmen on Tap as well, to bring the younger crowd in. So in a second, we're going to have you tell us about Carmen on Tap and sing us something from Carmen, perhaps. Is it going to be from Carmen? Yes. Yes. But last question, last question is for us, because our tradition here at Unorthodox is the Gentile of the Week. Have you ever been a Gentile of the Week before? I'm a Gentilette, but no. A Gentilette? No, a Gentilette. You know, this raises again the question of whether Jewess is a permissible term, which I'm obsessed with. But, um, but well, it's as like a, being a songstress. songstress. Can't you just be a singer? A songstress? Okay, as a songstress, as a Gentile of the week, we're going to get to her songstress <laughs> status. For the moment, she's the Gentile of the week. And our tradition is that you get to ask a question of us, the panel of expert Jews, because we are the podcast of North America. So what, do you have a question or two for us as Jews that we can explain to you about our people? I do. So when I lived in Montreal, I lived in Montreal for a long time, I lived in the Hasidic community. And I often wondered what the significance of the curls were. Well, what I mean, does that mean? You, want to take, you can take this. It's from Leviticus. And it says something about like not shearing. What is it like from your forehead to your your ear to your temple. I'm looking. I'm looking out at the rabbi, but it's it's there's like a there, it, there's a biblical significance that at some point was decide you know was sort of perpetuated. And I think was it in Maimonides' time that was it was like very bad. To, it was considered like 
heathenistic to cut them. To cut your payas? Yeah. So I think that's right. Can I, can I give the version I would have given? Which is not... Sure, you can, mans- you can pay-a-splain me. I can pay-a-splain you? Here's the thing. I knew someone who once thought that they actually used, like, curling irons to curl them. And in fact, that's just that if you have curly hair and they grow really long, they start curling. So there's no actual significance to the curl. But, like, I look like that in the morning. Yeah, exactly. We all, we all, exactly. We all have that. So the length is Leviticus, is, is Torah. Or, or the not cutting is Torah. But the curl is just... It's evolution. Is evolution. Did anyone want to add, did any, does any scholars there want to explain School it? School us. The rabbi is going to explain it to us. Okay. Well, first of all, I don't have curly hair in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> but indeed, you're correct in Leviticus, in Vayikra, it says you're not supposed to cut the corner of your beard. That's all it says. And then the, out of that grows the sense that people were supposed to have beards. Um, and then there were times when people would use like dilapidatory creams when, when they wanted to be clean shaven. They wouldn't use a razor. So sorry for Harry's razor. Yeah, it's, it, we, the irony that we're sponsored by Harry's razor has been pointed out to me by some of our more observant is fans. There, is there any connection with like the field and like certain things you're not supposed to do in certain places? Is that a weird question? The, the word for the corner of your beard is the same word as the corner of the field. But I don't think that there's the same kind of... Uh, connection other than language. All right. Does that help? Yes. Sorta. So it's Leviticus. It's Leviticus. Don't don't cut don't the corners do of your beard. Okay. Okay. Did you any other? What will happen if you do? Uh, you have to move to the United States. No. Before we let you off the stage, you have to sing something for us, and okay. I want to hear about your dinner theater, Carmen, and I want to hear about what Carmen means to you. Like, why of all the heroines in the opera canon? And it's filled with them. Why Carmen? Why have you made Carmen Dinner Theater your life's work? Carmen is my soul sister. Because when I was a little kid, I didn't dream about growing up and getting married and having kids. I grew up, when I was a kid, I wanted to grow up and be free. Like, I understood that my mom and my dad were the boss of me when I was little, theoretically, but my soul was like, I don't get it. Like, why do you get to tell me what to do? I just want to be free. And I I couldn't wait until I was old enough to be free. And then I encountered this character, Carmen, whose most valuable asset is her freedom. And it was just love at first sight. And I think that as a performer, when you connect to a character very deeply, it's because you are a little bit like them. Uh, So Carmen is um, vibrant. She's energetic. She's sexy. She has all the boyfriends she wants, and she's faithful. But then when it's over, it's over, and she makes no bones about it. Um, And she's willing to give up everything for her freedom, and this is essentially what is at the root of what I find so attractive about her and why she's such a charismatic ca- character. She's opera's first feminist, and no one in the world ever sees Carmen and goes away hating her. She, she, you fall in love with her from the second she's on the stage, and I am sad every time she dies at the end, and I just felt so completely... Um, possessed by the soul of this creature. So I've been singing Carmen for over a decade, and it has 
evolved through the years because I've changed. So I'm a little bit older, I'm a little bit wiser, or you know that old saying is you get older, you know less, a little bit more uh, confident, secure. And I heard about this gang in England who were performing opera in a bar and I just thought to myself, I can do that and I can do that better. So I started put a bunch of people together and we went to a bar and we put on a show in a bar, totally old school. I had no idea what we were doing. We sold out and I've been doing it every year since and we sell out every single time because it's cheap, it's fun, there is no dramatic wall, you're having your dinner, you can go for a smoke, you can wear jeans, it's 40 bucks, and you can hear world-class, actually my tenor is American, he just sang at the Met, he just sang on Broadway, so it's like a world-class performance that unfolds in the middle of a dance floor somewhere, and people go wild for it. Sounds awesome, so what are you gonna sing for us? I'll sing you the most famous aria from Carmen, which is the Habanera. A little bit of it. with some Mazel Tovs of the week. Alyssa, do you have a Mazel Tov for us this week? I do. My Mazel Tov is to the 20,000 American women, and it's probably more than 20,000 now, but about a day and a half ago it was 20,000, who donated to Planned Parenthood in Mike Pence's name. (laughs) So for every donation, Mike Pence gets a piece of paper sent to his office. (laughs) It's 20,000 envelopes, and... You better believe I donated, and you better believe I donated in a multiple of chai. <laughs> it's only a shame he won't get that, right? The 18s and 36s will mean nothing to it's him. between me and Hashem. It's between you and Hashem. Um, I have two Mazel Tovs this week. The first is to the Jewish human rights organization Teruah, which started a project to send Hanukkah books to Steve Bannon, the Trump advisor. This is obviously because you may know that in Steve Bannon's divorce proceedings of a number of years ago, his wife said in her deposition that um, Steve had not wanted to send their daughters to a particular school because there were too many whiny Jewish girls there. And also, he asked the principal of that school, might have been a different school, but in, in school shopping for their kids, he asked the principal of another school, why are there so many Hanukkah books in the library? So Teruah has started a program asking that you send copies of Hanukkah books of your choice to Steve Bannon, care of Donald Trump in Trump Tower, <laughs> with notes asking him to pass them on to Steve Bannon. If this is what you want to do with your money, send to Donald Trump, care of Donald Trump, 725 Fifth Avenue, New York, New York, 122. Include a note asking him to give the book to Bannon. I That's- really like that, like, we don't need to send Hanukkah books to Jewish kids in America. Like, they're fine. Let's just, like, send them all to Steve Bannon. Could we get the PJ Library to put Steve Bannon on? 
That would be awesome. We should get the, we have to call Harold Grinspoon and get him, so you guys know the PJ Library, obviously, but if anyone out there in our podcast land doesn't, it's a program of free books for kids. You should all go to pjlibrary.org. It sends free Jewish books to Jewish children. No questions asked. They don't ask to see if you're circumcised or whatever. You say your kid is Jewish, you give a birthday, you get free books. Wouldn't it be amazing if all the children of these little neo-Nazis had just a monthly Jewish book coming to them? <laughs> that would be amazing. Do you have a Mazel Tov yet? Yes. Okay. I have two. Okay. Well, the first one, obviously, for my main man, Ben Cohen, who's at home with Cat Stevens, the cat, tonight. And it, you know, it usually gets dicey when I leave Do you leave think he's being faithful alone. to you? With Cat the Stevens? Cat, no. Cat Stevens? Because Cat, like, in the middle of the night is when he likes to, like, attack. And he prefers to attack me because, you know, like, you know. But so, you know, leaving them alone makes me worried. But so thank you. And I also, I want to say, Liel... I guess this isn't really, isn't really a mazel tov to Leo, but he wrote a piece on tablet last week about sort of – we talked about it on the podcast last week also about his grandfather Siegfried's experience um, in Austria and what it sort of taught him. And it has been retweeted. It has been tweeted by like Sarah Silverman and like Joss Whedon retweeted it. And it's like having this like really funny celebrity – Rosie O'Donnell retweeted it. Like it's having this very funny celebrity afterlife on Twitter. So, I had no idea. Yeah, who else? It actually it broke the internet for Tablet. It was, um, I think, our best traffic day This was ever. this piece about how to know when to get out, basically, yep. right? Uh, so go Liel. Yeah, good one. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Many, many major thanks this week to Beth Sedek and everyone here in Toronto. Our show is edited by Noah Levinson and produced by Alyssa Goldstein and Shira Telushkin. Rabbinic supervision this week is by the amazing Jewess Erin Lofties, who's keeping the faith alive in Norman, Oklahoma. She sent us the best email of the week. Kosher slaughtering is by Rudy Giuliani. How we miss the days when you were dressed up in drag and partying with your liberal friends in New York City. Follow Tablet on Facebook. Subscribe and rate us on iTunes. If you do nothing else this week, subscribe and rate us on iTunes. And then follow us on Twitter at TabletMag. Our music is by Golem, though this week also by Julie Nasrallah. And when not on the road, we record in Argo Studios a sonic lifeboat on the rocky waters of America. Shalom, friends. <laughs> <laughs>